Thank you very much, sirs, ladies, gents, and good evening. Can you all hear me okay at the back? Fantastic. So as uh, Rob said, Wing Commander Jim Schofield, I'm uh, the Lightning Requirements Manager over at Abbey Wood, which loosely speaking means I translate the capability that the MOD need, um, I make sure the project team are aware of what that is, and then I feed back from the project team program reality back to capability. And uh, that's it in a nutshell. But um, there, I read another document the other day that said I'm the, uh, the keeper of the golden thread. I have yet to work out what that means, but I'll let you know if I find out. Okay, so before I begin, and thanks for all coming to hear about F-35 flight tests, can I have a show of hands for uh, operators in the room, just so I know uh, how to pitch it? So pilots, aircrew, okay, and flight test professionals, okay, and lastly, but not least, journalists. Yeah, those. Fantastic. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, the scope then. We'll talk about uh, why F-35, why is it an important aircraft? the kind of capabilities it can bring so that we're all singing from the same sheet. I'll talk about um, the UK's plans for it, and then I'll major on F-35 flight test, and I'll take questions at the end. I'm going to aim for an hour. Why F-35 then? We'll start off with some terminology. So JCA was the Joint Combat Aircraft, which was um, the MOD's requirement for carrier strike um, post the 1998 SDSR, the Strategic Defense uh, Review. Um, in 2002, I think it was, JSF was chosen to fulfill that requirement. Um, JCA has now been renamed Lightning II as it's in uh, MOD service. So uh, those are the terminologies I'll use throughout. So what, uh, what does Lightning II need to do? Well, it's a joint strike asset, and it needs to be survivable, sustainable, expeditionary is a key one there, and it needs to contribute to the widest possible range of operations on the basis that we don't know what the next conflict is going to be. Um, some new capabilities are in, it introduces, particularly for the UK, it's got um, the world's most advanced radar, so ESA is a new one for the UK, and the APG-81 is doing uh, very well indeed. It's got advanced stealth technology, so the jet means we can operate where we haven't operated before, we can get closer to threats, um, which makes us a lot more survivable and a lot more lethal. Every jet has EOTS in the nose, the electro-optical targeting system. So uh, certainly in my legacy fleet, we used to fight over targeting pods. Now every jet has one, and it's not only the pilot using it, the mission systems uses it as well. The distributed aperture system, or DAS, so those of you familiar with Typhoon, this is a different DAS. This is now the infrared camera that gives the aircraft and also the pilot a 360-degree view of the battle space. And the pilot can project that into his helmet, amongst other things. Uh, it's got a network-enabled capability, so there's a range of data links that the aircraft uses to share its view of the battle space. And also, it um, has the potential to absorb a lot of information about what's out there. So um, Combat I-Star is a capability we're very much looking forward to in the future, being able to exploit that information for wider defense. Okay, then the acquisition strategy. So we'll start off with this uh, JSF logo here. So the wider program, their role is to develop and deliver 3,000 or so JSF aircraft, plus all the support that goes with it. You've then got JCA, now Lightning II, and we're interested there in participating in and influencing JSF development and ensuring the air system, it's not just an air vehicle now, it's a whole system of stuff that goes with the aircraft, is compatible with all of the UK aspects, be they legal, C4I, mission support, 
logistics, training, and there are more. And then down the bottom here, we've also got um, addressing key UK policy and legislation. There's no good having this wonderful jet if you're not legally allowed to use it um, in wartime. And we need to also ensure that the UK infrastructure, personnel, and services are set up to support Lightning. Uh, there's another key bit in red down the bottom there. It's affordable to the UK by us remaining as common with the program as we can, wherever we can. Now, there are some areas where we've chosen to be different. For example, we've put um, UK weapons on board. Um, but you do pay for that for those differences. So where we can, we stick to the, uh, the US program to get costs down. We'll now talk uh, briefly about capabilities so that we know um, what I'm talking about when it comes to flight test. So you've heard all about fifth gen. What does it mean? So along the bottom, you've got uh, the development of fighter jet aircraft. So first gen, back in the, um, the late 40s and early 50s, jets like the F-86, um, basically a jet with a gun. Second generation then, um, speed became a lot more important. Jets uh, were able to dash supersonic and had radar, rockets, and the like. Third gen then, um, mid-70s through to about 1990, so multi-role aircraft, able to do lots of different missions. Um, radar got better. S systems still weren't talking to each other. And notably from a UK perspective, uh, Harrier um, was a third-gen platform. So whereas the common trend was towards fighter jets, Harrier bucked that trend, as I'm sure you'll repeatedly tell me in the bar, being the subsonic pig it was, but a great machine nonetheless. And then we're on to fourth-gen. So fourth-gen was um, mid-70s through to early-90s, um, and we started seeing low observable treatment, so um, trying to make jets stealthy where we could, Advanced avionics, not necessarily integrated particularly well, and the, um, the onset of guided weaponry. And along the top there, you've got the development of stealth aircraft from SR-71, high and fast, through F-117, B-2, and then over on the right, you've got 5th gen. So what does that mean? You've got a fighter aircraft that has 4th gen-like performance, but it is a stealthy aircraft. And previously, stealth had, had none of that performance. You've got integrated sensor fusion. So all of these sensors that are looking out at the battle space, they're presenting the pilot with one picture, not many pictures, so that he doesn't become maxed out. He has a seamless presentation of what's out there. We talked about net-enabled. Uh, and also these jets are built around making life as easy as possible for the maintainers, whereas traditionally you just got the number of maintainers you needed to fix the jet. Now the jet is built around making life easy for them as well. So, JSF variants. We start off top left with the, uh, the A model. So that is an F-16 replacement, effectively. Uh, it's CTOL, so conventional takeoff and landing. It's got a um, air-to-air refueling receptacle on the top of the spine here. It's got an internal gun just on the, the left shoulder here, 25mm four-barrel Gatling. Not my spelling. And we then move down to the, uh, the B variant. So the, the A is a 29,000-pound weight jet, 40,000 pounds of thrust, 18,000 pounds of fuel. Um, and once you fully load it, it's in the 70,000-pound weight class. The B variant down here, um, you've got a lift fan just behind where the pilot sits, so some fuel had to be traded out for that. Um, you've got roll posts, 
So like Harrier puffers, but uh, mid-cord in the wing, mid-span, sorry, um, which give you reaction control in the hover and approach in the hover. And you've got this clever three-bearing swivel nozzle down the back end, uh, which rotates down in stovel mode to allow the jet to hover. It doesn't do anything for thrust vectoring in combat. It's just there for stovel. So the B variant um, is a little heavier than the A. It's 32,000 pounds, a bit less fuel, down to 13,500 pounds of fuel. Um, and it's a 60,000 pound jet fully tooled up. And then the C variant, um, which we had a, a two-year fling with, um, it is probe and drogue, as well as the uh, in common with the B variant. Um, it's beefed up to be able to take cats and traps, as you'd expect on the aircraft carrier. It has a wing fold. It's got ailerons outboard of the wing, whereas the A and the B just have um, trailing edge flaps and leading edge flaps. And it has a bigger tail to compensate for the bigger wing. And the B and the C, if you want the gun option, that is a gun pod. So no internal gun on the B or the C. The C variant weighs 35,000 pounds up to 70 and has 20,000 pounds of internal gas. Okay, so all of these stealth features, um, if you want them, you need to think about them as you're building the jet. It's very difficult to engineer them in afterwards. So F-35 has internal fuel tanks. It's got the option for external tanks uh, in the future. But obviously, um, if you're going to go in stealthy day one, you want to uh, just have internal fuel. It's got a fixed array uh, radar that we've mentioned uh, up at the front. Engine inlets um, are diverterless, and they give full line of sight blockage to the uh, leading edge of the fan for tactical considerations. All of the edges, or as many of them as possible, are aligned so that the pilot is able to manage his signature um, in accordance with stealth tactics. No external aerials. Those are all internal in the leading edges and the trailing edges of the uh, wing and the horizontal tail. And the engine nozzle down the back also has a reduced signature. Um, internal stores carriage, it's good for um, 2,000 pound weapons, um, bombs in the uh, F-35B, which is obviously the jet we're interested in, and two AMRAMs internally as well. Talked about that, and there you see the weapons internally. Okay, so we talked about this being an air system, not simply an air vehicle. Um, we'll start top left. So it's a highly supportable air aircraft. Uh, we talked about making it easier for the maintainers. It's also got something called prognostic health management. So when the jet nears base, it knows uh, what's wrong with it through running bit checks all the while. Um, it'll tell the maintainers on the ground uh, what they need to know in order that um, parts can be ordered if they're not already there, and the jet can be readied for the next flight as soon as possible. Uh, and it's all based around on-condition <coughs> maintenance. So support systems um, comes with a 24-7 help desk. Uh, everything's electronic. There's this global supply chain, so you should never run out of stuff. Uh, bottom right, the heart of the offboard part of the airplane is the Autonomic Logistics Information System. Bit of a mouthful, so we call it ALICE. Um, on there, you've got anything from flight planning, uh, which we call offboard mission systems, or OMS, um, through to the maintainers doing all of their maintenance or post-maintenance actions and writing those things up. 
Clearly, that needs to be deployable, so there will be a deployable version so that jets can go to uh, deployed operating bases and the like. And then top right, training, is the next slide. So again, you buy a training package. Um, part of that is interactive courseware. So on your conversion unit, pilots are able to um, effectively carry out distance learning in their rooms for the courseware if they wish. Um, lots of um, electronically mediated lectures, so PowerPoint kind of stuff with um, multimedia. We've talked about mission planning. Once you have planned your sortie, though, everything goes onto the brick, and you then either go to the simulator or to the jet, and the theory is it's relatively transparent to you, which you're going to, so you train like you fight. Um, the mission simulator comes in um, two varieties, but there is also this uh, pilot training aid, which is effectively a computer with HOTAS and a screen. Um, there are ten buttons and a paddle on the stick, or ten switches, I should say, each of which can have up to five ways of actuating it and another 12 on the throttle. So you need to get your head around that before getting in the jet. And this pilot training aid is a great way for people to practice in their own time so they don't embarrass themselves when they get in the jet. Um, so there's a deployable mission rehearsal trainer, or a DMRT, which he, uh, has two cockpits in it, and guys will be able to train wherever they're deployed. And then you have a full mission simulator, which is at the main operating base, and that is your primary means of training for guys coming through the conversion unit and then uh, for keeping current when they're back at base. Okay, enough of that. What does a jet do for us? Clearly, it has this day one capability. Um, so it's stealthy, it's supersonic, it's multi-role. lets us go where we couldn't have gone before. Um, but it also needs to be able to carry out the full range of traditional mission sets. So air interdiction, um, seed and deed, Offensive counter-air, strategic attack, close air support, and defensive counter-air. And all of those are, are very important, and the jet is capable of all of them. In order to carry out those, obviously you need some weapons. So this slide is slightly out of date. The weapons the UK is interested in are AMRAM, Paveway 4, and ASRAM at the end of SDD, which is the system design and demonstration phase, which runs until uh, mid-17. So at that stage, those are the weapons we'll have on the jet. And then in the future, we're looking to meteor and uh, additional enhancements to the, uh, the weapon inventory. Okay, the timeline. So the US Marine Corps are interested in Block 2B. That's the capability they are... Um, IOCing the initial operating capability. Uh, that's what they're declaring. And for them, that's going to happen in the middle of next year. For us, we're interested in Block 3F up here, um, which has a number of differences from 2B, but that is the standard at which the UK will IOC its aircraft. So that is fleet released in the middle of 2017. Um, we bring our squadron back that will have started at Beaufort in North Carolina. That squadron will have um, started standing up in 2016. That will come back to the UK in 2018 at Block 3F standard for us to declare IOC at the end of 2018. And then we'll carry out uh, first-of-class flight trials on the UK aircraft carriers in 2018 as well. Okay, so you've got the uh, 
the Mara and Badger on the left there, that is the main operating base. And then we've got the Queen Elizabeth class carrier or carriers um, fitted with a ski jump, um, which gives us a number of advantages over the US Marine Corps carriers, more of which to come. Um, this is a big carrier. The Invincible class carrier was uh, 22,000 tons displacement. This chap here. And then this is QVC. So 65,000 tons displacement. The flight deck has doubled in width. And it's the, um, in terms of length, it's gone from 680 feet up to around about 920 feet, it says here. And the displacement, I think I said, up to 65,000 tons. But the ship's complement is the same, um, around about 700 people. So it's a big ship. What that enables us to do is obviously it's got a ski jump so we can get airborne with more weight than we would from a flat deck. It means we've got more of an upwards vector so we can operate from rougher seas than might otherwise be the case. And it means we can think about advanced techniques such as um, shipborne rolling vertical landing, which is landing with about 35 knots of overtake on the deck of the ship. And that means you can bring back more fuel and weapons should you need to. Okay, so we've had a number of people working on the program for quite a while now. Um, initially at the uh, Joint Program Office in DC, and then at the factory over at Fort Worth. Um, and we've, because the UK was a level one partner in the program, we've been able to get people into key positions, which has enabled us to understand the program from the outset, and it's enabled us to um, wield a bit of influence uh, where we can. Um, we've also got people at Pax River, where I was, so that is the main base for F-35B and C, the naval variant testing. Um, we've got a few people out at Edwards Air Force Base, which is the main base for the A model testing, and that's where uh, OT, operational test, is going to happen later this year. And then Eglin Air Force Base, we've got um, three pilots through the training system there now with the Marine Corps. We've got 14 maintainers through the training system there, um, and we're about to send another pilot there next month. Two of those pilots will transition over to Edwards for operational test uh, later this year with most of the maintainers. With that level one partnership comes a level of industrial participation that might not otherwise have been the case, and the UK gets to build 15% um, of each jet by value. Uh, which is considerable, and it provides jobs for 24,500 Brits. <coughs> okay, so capabilities, where the program is now, um, the 100th jet has been produced. The fleet has flown 12,000 flying hours now, which is obviously a considerable number. Uh, the picture on the top there is the first Marine Corps 8-ship from Eglin. And down the bottom, you've got a, a USAF 4 ship, again, from Eglin. For the UK, we took delivery of our first aircraft in the middle of 2012. And we've also um, accepted the second and third. All three are now at Eglin. And we have uh, signed a contract at the end of last year for the fourth. Here's a picture of all the uh, the joint operations with the Marine Corps that's been happening out at Eglin. So, um, and there's some PACS pictures in there as well. So from pilots through to maintainers. Before I go into uh, flight test, I'm just going to give you 
a couple of minutes on my perspective, so where I've come from, so that you have a, you understand my frame of reference for, assess, for assessing the jet. Um, so back in the day, my dad was an airline pilot, and I got to fly with him a lot. Late 70s, this is me in the front of one of the, uh, the British aerobatic team aircraft. But this was particularly formative for me, because um, I think it was this day that I fully understood I needed a cockpit at the front of the airplane. No one else around me. I was ignoring my dad in the back. And I decided that a field of view was very important. Clearly here, I didn't have much of one. Um, as I grew up through the teenage years, I had no new aircraft I could get my hands on. So it was a revelation to me to join the UAS and discover that um, I could you know, think about putting new contraptions onto old aircraft. So you know, test flying was definitely my blood. Um, joined the Air Force, went on to fly the Harrier, which was an exceptional experience. So, as you heard, just the full range of desert through to Arctic and a bit of aircraft carrier ops, a lot of night low level, um, and that was very useful for the years to come. Um, after test pilot school, and there's a picture of Rob uh, top left there. Where's Rob? You might recognize that. Um, so ETPS was um, fantastic value in getting to fly the various types you fly that year. Um, one moment sticks in my mind, which was flying the Astra Variable Stability Hawk in a um, very loose longitudinal configuration. And the, uh, the patter from the instructor, from the tutor, was that this is as bad an airplane as you will fly longitudinally. Um, forward a year or two, I'm then flying Harrier test. It was probably the, the test top right there with Paveway 4 external stores, RCG. And particularly when you lower the nozzles, this was way worse than Astra ever was. So that was interesting. Um, lots of rockets fired bottom right there. That was the CRV-7 frangible nose cone trial, which was a good excuse to hoof off some op pods. After my time on the fast jet test squadron, I went back to um, the test pilot school to uh, become a, a tutor. Uh, the first year as a regular tutor was fantastic fun, and the, uh, the second year as a principal tutor fixed wing. There's a few of us in the, uh, in the audience balding as a result of that experience from stress. Um, so I went on to HQ1 Group to be the desk officer for JCA, as was, and also Harrier. And that was a great opportunity to get up to speed on the program. But the best thing about the job was Manning lived two floors down, so I could pester them on a daily basis, which led ultimately to them saying, if you go away, I'm sorry, will you go away if we uh, send you to the F-35 integrated test force? Of course, yes, absolutely. So the ITF um, was hosted by VX-23, the Strike Aircraft Test Squadron, out at uh, Naval Air Station Patuxent River in southern Maryland. And I went there in mid-2011. Here's a map of PAX. Here's DC. Culture stops about here. And this is the, the Chesapeake Bay where a lot of the PAX testing happens. And they've also got the Atlantic test track out here where a lot of their supersonic work occurs. Um, it wasn't uncommon to be operating in the area with P8, X-47, and BAMS, the, uh, the Naval Global Hawk. Um, a great location for flight test. Before I got there, a lot of the ground testing had already occurred. We were buying the F-35C at the time, so this was uh, useful to know that the jet could withstand this kind of stuff. And unfortunately, I had no part in this test, although I would have loved to have been there. So, um, my initial thoughts on getting to VX-23 were the, the scale of the place. I cast my mind back a few years to testing Harriers from Wharton. 
Um, and from, from Boscombe, you would typically have one or two trials officers or FGs brief. Um, on my first day here, they said to me, Jim, why don't you go and um, fly a, an emergency sim? It'll be for the control room's benefit, uh, so relatively low-key. Okay, fine, we'll do that. So I turned up to a room with 40 people in it. I went, this is not my room, walked away. I got dragged back. It turns out that was my room. Um, so you get to sit at the head of the table with the test conductor, test director, and then uh, a flight test engineer for all of the disciplines on the aircraft. Um, I was expected to run that brief and then run the emergency sim as well, which was a, um, an apt start to two and a half years of... Uh, it, was a, it was a busy time. So, talking of scale, um, there are mm, six F-35 Bs and Cs. Uh, I, when I got to PAX, there were five, and after about 18 months, that had gone up to 10 briefly before coming back down to eight. And then over at um, Edwards, they have a similar number, slightly fewer, but a similar number out there as well. You've got the, uh, the PAX test pilot Carter, top right, um, typically about 14 guys in the office. Uh, Navy and Marines, so the Navy guys had Hornet, Super Hornet background, and the Marines, uh, Harrier and Hornet. It was great having that wealth of experience um, to draw on. And I, I forget the, sorry, I forgot to mention the, um, the industry test pilots as well. So BAE Systems and Lockheed Martin, with a wealth of experience going back to A7s and the like, um, which was uh, very useful. So, initially qualified on the F-18. Um, my predecessor, it took him about 18 months to get into the cockpit just because there was a queue. For me, it took about 11 months, and my successor has got in the cockpit after somewhere between six and eight months. So that is improving all the time. Um, but to be honest, it was very useful in that I could fly the F-18, I could get completely comfortable with operating in a new airspace, new language effectively, um, new aeroplane particularly, and also while flying the F-18 you could hear the cadence of the F-35 test sorties. Um, you could work out what was going wrong, you could put yourself in his cockpit, learn from the decisions the F-35 pilots were making, which ultimately made me a much better F-35 pilot when my time came. Um, it also gave me a very good um, fourth gen aircraft to compare F-35 handling to, uh, which is very useful later on. And the Edwards guys didn't have that luxury. They were F-35 single type. So we talked through the, uh, the control room size. Um, you've got two examples of the control room set up here. The top left is at PAX in the Atlantic test range, and bottom right is on board the USS Wasp. So um, it particularly in the early days, very much um, sounded like what I would expect a shuttle mission to be. Um, every switch had to be preceded by a clearance from the control room to throw that switch. Um, and it was very control room driven, albeit the pilot could override any of that for safety reasons or um, where common sense uh, dictated. As we got more and more time under our belts with F-35, it became much more, okay, just get the jet started, and then we'll meet you as you taxi out uh, on the radio. Uh, although it was still being monitored very strictly. And the key here is the control room has access to thousands of parameters, so they will get an indication if anything goes wrong with the aircraft well before you do. So um, 
a safety blanket in many ways, um, and very useful to have all that experience on tap when you needed it. Typically, you get given the, the test cards the evening before, and it would be, it was on card, but typically about 50, 50 A5 sheets, the first 10 of which were aircraft limits. And those limits would vary between each specific aircraft tail. Um, so you'd have to get your head around, okay, is it a B variant or a C variant? And then which tail version is it? Is it a mission systems jet with all the gadgets in it? Or is it a flight sciences jet, which has um, a lot more instrumentation and telemetry? Um, and they both have different limits. So once you've got your head around that, you need to obviously scan the cards and work out which of them is going to kill you. Um, the test cards had already been approved, so hardly ever had cause to change any of them, uh, which was great. Um, but there were, as with, as with all test flying, you'll find yourself in a corner, and if you haven't thought about it beforehand, uh, it'll bite you. So we did make good use of the, um, the simulator at PAX. Wherever there was a... All the test points um, were annotated with prior coordination required if it was felt that those were tricky and needed practice in the sim. And even if they weren't, it was probably a good idea to go and practice them anyway. So before we've got an aircraft, we have a good idea of power settings, um, what kind of uh, pitch angle you need to get to on, on the roll-in, all that kind of stuff, which was fantastic. So often my test cards would be annotated um, all over before I even got to the jet. Okay, so we've briefed, which typically takes about an hour and a half, walked out to the jet, and... Um, I put my helmet on before getting to the jet. Some people put it on on strapping into the jet. Clearly, it's your it's an important part of flying this aircraft. So you don't want to bash it on anything. Um, I was relatively sure, even at six foot four, that I wouldn't bash it on anything. So I took the risk and did the the walk around with the helmet on. You can see here the there's a um, a clear visor and the dark visor, and the dark visor does extend some way above above the pilot's head. Um, but there is a cover you can leave on that visor, which gives you an element of protection. So we've got a, a Gen 1 helmet here, which is a, a bifurcation up the middle of the visor. And then you've got the, the two projectors, one there and one here. Um, the performance of that helmet wasn't particularly good. So we went to the Gen 2 helmet, which is this one on the bottom. You can see the projectors have been moved um, under the visor. There's a night vision camera um, in a kind of monocular arrangement in the middle. Um, everything else is really standard. Sorry, is standard. The, um, the projectors projected onto the clear visor so you could raise the dark visor and still be able to see uh, your flight references. Um, you can see there's a lot of carbon fiber to keep the weight down. And what else on there? That'll do, I think. Um, so my perspective of flying with the helmet, um, whenever I went back to my F-18, I felt naked because I couldn't look around, get all those flight parameters in my helmet. I couldn't see where air tracks were because they all had boxes around them. Um, I've now got this legacy HUD to go back to. So F-35, it gives you a lot of situational awareness and it does make flying the jet easier. Um, a lot of the reports have talked about um, problems with the helmet. There were some, but to me, they were mostly around the edges. Um, the helmet generally works very, very well. I wouldn't want to be without it. Um, particularly when you have this infrared image in your visor, looking through your legs, targeting trucks moving down roads, that kind of thing. 
Um, it's stunning. Okay, walking up to the edge here, here's a, a legacy type for a size comparison. So F35 is 50 feet long, 35 feet wide, so somewhere between a Harrier and a Tornado. Uh, lots of sharp edges to bang your expensive helmet on. Um, not much to check as you walk around. Um, the one area that was potentially challenging was getting up into the weapon bay when there were weapons in there. Obviously you want to check all the settings, um, but it's quite a tight area with that helmet on. Normally it's fine. Um, it was still possible with the helmet, but uh, you just needed to be careful. So the jet's got an integral ladder on the left-hand side. You climb into the cockpit. It's a UK style of, um, of operating, so UK seat, five-point harness. Um, there's a PEC, which we call a PIC, which plugs into the left-hand side with all your connections. Your helmet plugs in down by your right buttock. Um, the leg restraints are integral to the, um, the footwells, and you've got arm restraints which plug into the quick-release fitting. As you can see, it's a very clean cockpit. Um, this is actually two glass panels in front of you, touch-sensitive, um, two for redundancy, but it looks like one when you're in the jet. Very few other knobs and switches other than the uh, switches festooning the, uh, the hands-on throttle and stick side. It's got a voice recognition system, so um, the control room took great delight in hearing me use my American to try and talk to the jet. Generally, for me, it worked better with, uh, with British, actually, um, apart from my fours. So I had to practice anywhere from four, four to four. Uh, it seemed to be happy with a kind of mid-American accent. But they, they were you know, very keen to debrief me on my uh, Americanisms uh, when I got back. So the canopy's forward hinging, so you can take the seat out without removing the canopy. Um, like we said, the jet's designed around ease of maintenance. Um, starting the jet is simple, battery on, um, IPP, which is like an APU, turn that on, then turn the engine on. Everything fires up, and you're ready to taxi. So this jet has two AIM-9Xs on it. This was my last flight, which was a weapon separation event, so those uh, AIM-9Xs had uh, cameras in to film the, the bomb release. Um, as you're taxiing out, the, the nose wheel steering has very good uh, gains. It's got a high gain and a low gain. It'll turn on the, the inside wheel, which is great for uh, smaller carriers. We probably won't need it for the QEC. Um, and you're aware that this is a 40,000-pound thrust jet when you're taxiing. Um, if you leave the throttle open too far, you, uh, you find out about it. On takeoff, similarly, it uh, performs very well. Um, Gear retraction is quick. The, uh, the C variant takes slightly longer because the gear legs need to shrink um, before they come up. And then once you're airborne, the flying qualities are very good indeed. Um, I only had a quick go in Typhoon, but a fair bit of time in Gripen. And um, this is the easiest jet I've flown so far, particularly when it came to the, the higher gain tasks, such as sitting behind the tanker, more of which to come. Okay, so um, there were four flight control modes, UA for up and away, conventional flight, PA for powered approach, which is when you put the wheels down, um, Stovall, with the wheels down, you push the Stovall button, all kinds of magic happens behind you, you take the I believe pill, everything's fine, and then 
AR mode when you put the, um, the air refueling probe out, the jet goes into air refueling mode. So it's, uh, it flies very solidly. It's very well damped longitudinally uh, in roll, very fast, very well damped. Uh, yaw, again, very well damped. Really not that much to talk about. Um, with neutral longitudinal stability, the auto throttle is very useful. So you just engage that with a push on the um, your ring finger on the throttle, and then you can adjust your speed on that same switch, and the jet will just go there, and you can pretty much forget about speed maintenance. Um, in refueling mode, so the probe comes out, the jet then flies very much like it does in powered approach mode. So all the gains toned down, um, it flies very solidly behind the tanker is the best way I can describe it. Generally, if I found the basket was moving around at all, I just let go of the stick, and it stopped. Um, it was usually me. Um, what I well, one potential downside when you put the probe out, the probe tip is uh, roughly in line with the canopy arch, um, which for a Harrier guy, when the probe is behind you anyway, it's not a problem. Some people are used to probes in front of them. When it's slightly more out here, uh, it takes them one go to get used to it, and after that, it's fine. But particularly with the flying qualities, you can literally sit there with the probe in the basket, hands off as long as the tanker isn't moving, which in those old Hercs was a challenge, but as long as the tanker wasn't moving, it would just sit there, which is stunning. Um, the jet would go to a more high drag configuration um, to give you better throttle response behind the tanker. Here you can see a C variant, so it's got a cambered wing and the ailerons are deflected uh, slightly up to give you more drag. And the jet has a virtual speed brake, um, so even when you're not in refueling mode, you could there is a speed brake switch, it'll do something similar to this. And even though it's virtual, it's the most effective speed brake I've flown with. Works very well indeed. Powered approach mode then, wheels down. Uh, it's transparent to you whether you've got stores on or not. Um, we use the auto throttle around the circuit, that's very useful. You push another button on the throttle, and the jet then sets the approach angle of attack and trims it out nicely, and it'll fly to the runway pretty much hands off. Um, the C variant has direct lift control, which makes it's literally stunning. Um, if you need to move your VV anywhere on the runway, um, just a, a hair on the on the stick, and it you can feel the whole jet elevating without much change in them. Okay, Stovall. So you've broken into the pattern, you've put the gear down, you've pushed the button called Stovall, all kinds of clunking behind you, the lift fan spools up. Um, after a flight, you don't really notice it, but it's a bit like sitting next to a, a spin dryer. So you feel a high-frequency vibration behind you, um, but that's about it, really. Um, in Stovall mode, there's a detent at mid-throttle, and that will hold your speed. You can then accelerate or decelerate, and then back to the middle to hold it. Um, much easier to fly than a Harrier, in that the stick forwards and aft is always down and up. So if you're above about 50 knots, that will change your flight path. If you're below about 50 knots, that will then just make the jet descend or um, climb level. And if you let go, in a legacy Stovall aircraft, the one thing you could guarantee was it wouldn't be where you left it. In this, it will be exactly where you end it. It'll be better than you left it. It'll level off for you if you let go and so on. So it's, um, it looks after you. And it won't let you decelerate if it knows you haven't got the performance to hover below a certain limit. Okay, um, so you're in the hover. 
Um, there's a baseline flight control, which is easy to use. And then there's something called TRC, translational rate control. When you engage that, the jet then becomes, um, instead of, we'll take the lateral stick as an example. With the baseline control, it's like legacy. So it's a, an acceleration command. If you move it over a bit, the jet will bank and start to accelerate that way. In TRC, uh, you apply a force, and that's a, um, um, that relates to your lateral ground speed. If you let go of the stick, the jet will then apply bank the other way to come to halt, and then wings level. Um, so you have to get your head around which mode you're in. It, it does become apparent to you very quickly. And TRC really makes hovering very easy. So we had a lot of um, integrated test blocks. So um, on the school, you teach guys all their different test techniques, and they'll have those in their toolbox to apply to any type. These integrated test blocks were a fairly standard set of tests um, that we performed at each condition that would get the, um, the flight test engineers the data they needed. Um, and the good thing about this compared with what we often had to do in the UK, uh, you had real-time feedback on your test techniques. Um, so you might have to repeat a point, but at least you don't land thinking you're a hero and find out an hour later that you're not. Um, back on that quickly. So we had um, loads points where they're just interested in maximum G or maximum alpha. Flying qualities where they're interested in the full sweep of alpha or G. Um, flutter test points. The jet has a flutter excitation system. So you get on condition, hit a button, and the flight controls do their thing to, um, to see if flutter is um, initiated. Um, normally you would only hear the test conductor on the radio. Uh, the only exception to that would be if you had some kind of flutter event or the flutter engineers were also uh, hot-wired to you so they could say, knock it off if they had to. Never saw anything like that. Sensors. The, uh, the sensors are stunning. Um, the radar is really, really good. DAS is really good. The um, EOTS, the sniper pod-like system in the nose, um, is just like a sniper. Um, it's, it's very good indeed. Um, so specifically on the radar, this is an example of um, this is a synthetic aperture radar map. On the left, you've got what you would expect to see from a legacy jet. On the right, you've got... Um, so here's the runway. There's a taxiway. So the, this is a, um, a taxiway over here. This is a smaller road. And then these are some vehicles with the... Uh, impressions in the ground from where they've uh, driven over. Now clearly the program is still in development so a lot of these um, features are they started off in their infancy and we're seeing them come online as we progress through flight test. Um, this is another Northrop video of DAS. Um, this is a growth capability. It, it's a concept so it's not in F-35 so I'll caveat that. Um, but it gives you a good idea of the kind of resolution you can get from DAS. Um, particularly on the screen, when you put it in your helmet, it's not quite as good, but it's still very good. Um, but this will give you some idea of what DAS can do for the pilot, and hopefully will do in the future. Like I said, that's a concept at the moment, but you get the idea with the, uh, the DAS imagery. Okay, so weapon separation um, was one of the other things we had to do. Um, not too dissimilar from WebSEP testing on any other fighter. 
Uh, it's mostly a choreography event after you've done the modeling and um, shown that the release is going to be a safe one. Uh, choreography in terms of having one, maybe two chase aircraft with stills, with high-speed video, getting the, the weather, the range clearance, the, um, uh, you've probably got one shot with your uh, camera footage. So the planets need to line up for this to happen. Um, but it's great when it does. Ship suitability. Um, so the F-35C guys are interested in cats and traps. We were interested in stovall landing aids. Um, how are we going to get the jet aboard the ship? All that kind of stuff. So some of the high-risk test some of the high-risk testing that was carried out while I was at PAX was uh, air start testing. So BF-2, one of the flight science jets, went over to Edwards, where they have obviously a massive dry lake. Um, and they practiced turning the engine off and restarting it again. Sadly, I didn't um, take part in that, but it was successfully executed. High angle of attack um, has been going on for the last year or so, um, initially with F-35A out at Edwards, and now we're doing it with the C, and I think they've started with the B at PAX now as well. You can see uh, bottom right there, there's a drogue chute fitted to one of the jets. Um, so for those initial tests, the drogue chute was, uh, was fitted, and then subsequently it's been taken off. Okay, some of the other testing we did out at PAX was um, Stovall forward CG testing. So as the, uh, the fuel is burnt down, the CG moves further forwards, um, which places more demand on the lift fan, potentially. So this was high-risk testing because it all needed to be done at 100, 150 feet. Um, we didn't see any issues with it, but um, just an example of some of the high-risk stuff we had to do. The highlight of my time at PAX was uh, DT2, which was uh, the second visit of F-35B to the ship, uh, USS Wasp in this case. Um, it was about a year in the making from the start of plan to deployment. It happened last August. We took uh, two jets, a flight science jet and a mission systems jet. Um, not sure how many people we took, but I want to say about 300. Um, probably wasn't that many. We had 900 people on the on the ITF, just at PAX. I'm thinking about it, probably near 150 people we took. But again, a mix of uh, government, military, and industry. Um, so a lot of moving parts. Here is most of the team on the deck. We've got the mission systems jet BF-5 behind, and uh, you can see USS Wasp there. It's an LHD-class amphib ship. So it's got a well deck for amphibious operations, which they flooded and let us swim around in at the, uh, the two-week point of our three-week detachment. So that was a bit of morale. Um, and it did drain again afterwards, so that was good. Um, what to say there? Okay. So the aims of DT2 were to fly by day and by night. Night hadn't been done before. Um, to fly in heavier sea states, if we could find them. Um, to expand the wind envelope to the full... Uh, window of a deck for the, for the U.S. Marine Corps IOC um, and to fly with internal weapons. This is a typical brief in the biggest uh, compartment we could find in the ship. And you've got, um, we briefed both jets together, so this is uh, the team for two of the control rooms. You've got um, both pilots and both LSOs. You've got uh, one of the test conductors the other test conductor, the two desk directors, and then each of the um, 
flight test engineers for that particular discipline, and a bunch of hangers on at the back. That was where the email was. Okay, so walking around was a little more complicated. Uh, often the um, tail of the aircraft was hanging over the sea, so um, you didn't want to do a full walk around. Um, so more things to trip over, especially at night. Uh, on this one, I did wear a, um, um, a standard U.S. Navy headset um, and then switched to my helmet before getting in the jet. Because um, there are obviously six or four, lots of low pipes, and you sign for the jet and then walk, and I didn't want to be bashing my helmet on pipes on the way out. Um, the startup alignment, all that stuff was uh, nominal, taxied out, and as with a UK ship, the, uh, the marshaller owns you, um, so you do what he says. Um, taxing out was relatively simple. Lined up, converted, and here's the LSO up in the um, uh, the LSO compartment. In contrast to a UK ship, the LSO on a US ship owns you, really. Um, you've still got the safety of flight override, but um, if you're going to divert, he can call a divert. He can tell you where to go. So some different um, concepts to, um, to get the Brit pilot's heads around, at least. And talking of the pilots quickly, we had um, myself, I'd done 10 deck landings total ever before deploying, and I converted to Stovall operations maybe two or three months prior, and my first night event, well, my first night Stovall was probably two weeks before deploying, it was all getting a bit adjacent. Um, we had a BA systems test pilot with a lot of ship experience. We had a Marine Harrier pilot with a lot of experience, and we had a Marine Hornet pilot who had even less Stovall and night experience than I did, and he didn't find any night. Um, so this chap did all of his Top Gun, that stuff, and all the salutes and all that kind of stuff. So you'd line up on deck, you'd give him one finger to tell him you're about to convert, you push the button, all kinds of stuff happen behind you, you'd then give him two fingers, to tell him I'm going, going for a mill takeoff, which was 97%, or five fingers for a max takeoff, and there's no reheat in Stovall mode, um, so that's 100%. And then you power up, and after about a foot of wheel skidding, you let, let go of the brakes, uh, just like a Harrier, and off you go. So here's a jet coming down the deck. You can just about see here a yellow line which I think I'm right in saying uh, was the, uh, the stow rotation line, so the short takeoff rotation line. That's an important one, because on a flat deck, um, in this jet, you need to have rotated before you get to the end of the deck, for hopefully obvious reasons. Um, so that line was particularly important. Three ways of getting airborne. There's an auto stow, which is the way the Marines plan on doing things routinely, uh, where you type in the distance you are from the deck edge, and the jet does all the maths and rotates you at the line. It worked like a champ. Um, there is then a button stow where you push down on the trim switch as you cross the line. Um, everything happens um, automatically. Or you can go for a stick stow, which is the, the manual option. Um, we've got the luxury with ski jump of just being able to point down the deck, and the jet will sense when it's going up the ramp, and everything will happen. The other good thing about the ski jump is um, 
The nose wheel is in contact with the deck at all times, so you've got much better directional control. That said, we didn't have any issues with directional control, it's just more direct if your nose wheel's touching the deck. You can see here there's not a huge amount of clearance between the nozzle and the deck. Um, the control laws were changed slightly between DT1 and DT2. DT1, the jet was using diff tail for a bit of your control. That meant you lost lift at the back. So if you had any rudder in as you crossed the deck edge, um, things weren't quite as good as you would like. DT2, um, the nozzle down the back was introduced for your control. So the tails remained in a high lift configuration and um, like I said, you've got that your control now through the nozzle and the rudders. And that worked really well. So um, DT2 saw a significant improvement and um, all of the nozzle clearances were maintained. So that was a good news story. This chap, um, we weren't really sure what he did, but um, he was the, the wingtip safety line watcher, so he'd make sure no one was transgressing onto the, uh, onto the runway. And he got a very good view of the jet taking off. And you can see he's not holding onto anything. He never got blown anywhere, um, which was good. Climb out was a non-event. And you can see we had jets operating next to the takeoff point as well. Again, no issues there. This was a minimum performance stow. So um, high weight, short deck run, low wind over deck. And we were validating the performance model. Um, and the plan was you'd fly level for a bit before climbing, and that happened. So uh, that was good. Okay, so you've got airborne, you've flown your mission, um, you've come back, you've flown through the carriers overhead, you put the gear down, downwind, you push the button to convert to Stovall, you turn finals, you've typed in the ship speed, um, and when you push a button on the throttle, the jet will then decelerate to whatever speed the ship's doing. Um, this is not my picture, it's um, one from Google. So the panel is non-representative, but it gives you an idea of what it's like to be alongside the ship in the hover, albeit he's 30 feet high and a little aft. So um, ideally we'd be going for seven spot here. So you'd line up with this white line and then with the tram line in front of you, there's also a, a landing aid here which would uh, tell you you're in the right place. Um, so in the hover, you just push the stick right to come over the deck and then push the stick forwards to land. Usually as simple as that, albeit you have to make some corrections obviously for different wind. Um, when you touch down, you need to make sure the jet's not rolling, put the brakes on, the throttle's already come back to idle itself, and then you push the button to convert back out to uh, to CTOL, having given the marshal a quick warning, and then you taxi. It's uh, a lot easier than Legacy. Here's a jet alongside. Here's one in the hover. I haven't talked about the doors, but you've got the auxiliary air inlet doors on the top here, um, which mean you don't need the Harrier great big ugly air intakes. Um, you've got the upper lift fan door here, and the lift fan blows air vertically. You've got the lift fan, sorry, lower lift fan doors on the bottom, and you've got some uh, Venetian blind effects um, at the bottom of the lift fan that control deceleration or acceleration. And then you've got the um, uh, the nozzle, the three-bearing swivel nozzle down the back, and that's deceleration again and your control in the hover. And you can see it moving around even when the pilot's hands off to keep the jet steady in the hover. Um, 
The inboard weapon bay doors are open here to give a Harrier-like lift uh, improvement device system or lids. Um, not much to say. And the tail's in the high-lift configuration now. We then went to night. So I was a little apprehensive about night ops, not having done it in the Harrier, or ever. Um, but having heard lots of stories of doom and gloom from Harrier pilots who had, mostly RAF pilots, I'll grant you, who had um, nearly, um, well, who had scared themselves at night in a Harrier. I'm not saying Navy pilots hadn't scared themselves. I've got a naval representation at the back. But... Um, I'll stop talking there. Okay, so um, this was what I hoped my first night takeoff was going to be like, um, but various delays meant that it was completely black with no moon or anything by the time I went for my first takeoff. Um, you would think from a legacy perspective that I would have been slightly worried about that, but I wasn't. The jet, I knew what the jet was going to do. We proved it so many times. Um, so it was an instrument upwind turn. You'd reacquire the carrier downwind, turn finals, use the lights, uh, used the numbers in terms of decel ranges, and it all worked very well. Um, no dramas at all, really. That very important stow rotation line, they lit at night, as you would expect. And here you've got the jet uh, just about to touch down. They had a um, thermal coating on the deck, uh, which did very well. Uh, had no issues with that at all. Maintenance, here's a chap on his uh, portable maintenance aid talking to the aircraft, so he's plugged into a hole in the side of the aircraft. He can see everything that's going on with the jet that he would need to see as a maintainer. Um, if the engine wasn't running as it is here, uh, he can isolate various systems, power them up. Um, it just makes maintenance a lot easier. And rigging of surfaces, for instance, uh, is a very quick affair compared with a legacy type. Okay, flight test lessons learned quickly. Um, top left, Winkle Brown um, mentioned at a brief I was at about three years ago that um, someone asked him how he'd survived flying all these different crazy types and flying hurricanes that were ne never going to make it back to the carrier. Um, and he said, preparation, preparation, preparation. So a lot of what we did was preparing for flight so that we didn't, so that we optimized what we did in the air. Um, it really paid off in, in, in spades. Um, one area where my preparation wasn't quite up to scratch. Keep this amongst yourselves, please, because outside of this room, my reputation is untarnished. Um, about a minute before this, I was unaware that people ever did air-to-air -air refueling with, uh, with the wheels down. So I had read the test cards and assumed it was a typo. And then we got there, and they said, right, put the wheels down. Really? I know it says on the... Okay, put the wheels down. Um, but obviously, this is to cater for the, um, the recovery tanker on a US carrier. So if a chap bolters, he's low on fuel, he's still got the gear down, and there's his recovery tanker waiting for him. Uh, so this caters for that case. So you live and learn. Um, and in an outfit, in an organization as big as this, and that's probably a third to a half of the people at the ITF at PAX, communication is key. Um, very easy for messages not to get out there. You know, why are we pulling in this direction? Why are we doing this test point? Um, people need to know why they're doing 14-hour days, six days a week. Um, so it's the same in any organization. Communication is key. And I'm going to leave it there. So I would welcome any questions that you may have. I, sorry, just before I, just before I um, 
we do that. Sorry, Rob. Burning some calories there. Um, <laughs> he, used to, he used to eat a chunky Kit Kat an hour, but he's, he's off them now. <laughs> Sorry. You read an awful lot of bad press about F35. Um, it's, clearly, it's a very expensive program, so it's very easy to knock it. It's, it's a massive target. Um, what I hope I'm able to do is spread the message that this is, and I hate to use the term, but this is a game-changing airplane. Uh, it'll enable us to keep at the forefront of uh, military capability um, up until around 2050. Um, it'll enable us to meet the threats that are emerging out there at the moment and, and better them. And I'm a firm believer. Um, of course there are rough edges. You know, the jet is still in developmental test. Um, but you know, it is what it is. And we manage the rough edges on a daily basis. And I still think it's very much the jet we need. So I'll leave it there. Thank you. Are there any similarities between the oxygen system on this and the F-22? That's a good question. Um, it's similar in concept, but the way it is designed, I'm led to believe, is, uh, is different. So we don't have the same concerns about um, F-35 OBOGs as we do about F-22. Hi there, uh, Tim Robinson, Aerospace. I come in the building. Uh, many thanks for that great lecture, uh, Jim. Uh, fascinating insight. A uh, couple of quick questions. There's, there's some talk now that uh, the F-35 might uh, appear at Farnborough, uh, which is obviously very exciting. Will it, uh, if it's going to do it sort of the... It's, it's, if the B version is going to be there, it's going to do the, uh, the kind of hovering party piece. Would there have to be any sort of uh, 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 kind of thermal um, improvements to the runway or, would, or any kind of modifications to kind of concrete to be able to, to do that in front of the crowds? And my second question is... That was two. Uh, uh, Getting money's worth. My second question is, uh, the, the picture of you with the bulldog and the 27mm showed that you uh, were quite in, uh, you know, into, your, uh, into your guns. So UK is not going for the gun part, uh, or why not? Okay, so um, the first was uh, the possibility of a jet coming to the UK in the summer. And I know as much as you do. The, I know it's a UK aspiration that that happens. Um, I believe the program is looking at it and seeing whether it's possible in amongst its other priorities but no decision has been made yet. Um, if it comes over and if it can um, do a flying display, um, if it were to land vertically, it would need some kind of um, reinforcement um, to the surface that it was going to land on. But you can still carry out slow landings. You can still carry out hovers above 150 feet without any impact to, to the surface. And the last one was the gun pod. Um, it's... It makes sense to me that the UK would want a gun in the fullness of time um, for roles such as close air support, um, but there's no um, formal requirement for it yet. Uh, Jim, the UK carries off obviously different with the ski jump. Does that require any modifications to the flight control laws for, for there's Stowe? A, there's a... Um, I didn't dive too deeply into it because I knew that testing wasn't going to happen in my time there, but... Um, I believe there is a, a mode that the flight controls kick into um, when you are carrying out a short takeoff and they notice a pitch up um, that wasn't induced by the flight controls. So um, 
it will automatically do whatever it needs to do to launch safely off the ski jump. So it's a, it's a very clever system, and unlike a flat deck, it requires no interaction from the pilot. Tony Perk, I was in the MOD as a procurement officer, director of contracts. This is a U.S. Marine Corps program, isn't it? This is a U.S. Marine Corps program. No, it's F-35B. Um, F-35B is a program that the U.S. Marine Corps, the Italians, and the U.K. have... Okay, but it's driven by the, U the uh, Marine Corps. If they don't have it, you don't have it. Until the end of the, the SDD phase, the U.K. has um, a significant vote in... A, in uh, proportion with each of the U.S. services. So we have um, a fair say in what goes into the jet. It's quite interesting because the dynamics of uh, procurement for the U.S. Marine Corps is they have to fight for everything they want. They fought for the Harrier. And I believe that the uh, guy in charge of the F-35B program was the colonel in charge of the Harrier many years ago, or the AV-8B. And his, he gave us a lecture back in the 80s about uh, procurement management. And it was basically, we kick ass, and that's how we get what we want. So you're taking this aircraft, and the other services want, the Navy wants their aircraft, the Air Force want their aircraft. How much do you have to fight for what you want in this version of the aircraft? It's a good question. Um, like I said at the beginning, we're trying to keep costs down. So where possible, we come to an agreement amongst the for services um, that are part of SDD. So where possible, um, we can wield influence to persuade people that what we want on the jet might be a good idea. And if they agree, then the costs are shared amongst all the partners. Um, if we want something UK-specific, then we pay to be different. Uh, in terms of having to fight for things, um, if you go to the program with the money and you're paying to be different, then um, as long as it can be fitted into the program at a time that suits each of the partners, then that'll happen. So there isn't really an element of fighting, not that I've perceived so far anyway. Peter Crispin, with uh, Maritime Air, with the complexity of this machine, will it ever stop being tested? Will every flight be analysed to see how things are going? Um... Well, all jets are tested through to the end of their lives because we keep hanging different stuff off them and, and improving them in, in various ways. So there'll always be an element of that. Um, the jet will monitor its own performance. So more from a health management perspective, as I alluded to earlier on in the presentation, it will work out what's wrong with itself and, and diagnose its own problems. So from a built-in test perspective, that will always keep going. As we hang new stuff off the aircraft and in prove its capabilities, that will keep going. So there will always be an element of flight test with F-35, as there is in any platform. Hello there. Um, I'm, uh, my name's Justin Bronk. I'm a member of the uh, Air Power Program at RISI, which is a defense think tank. Um, I was wondering uh, two sort of short questions. Uh, first off, um, given the expense of uh, the F-35, um, both unit cost and uh, for any kind of UK-specific improvements or, ad or adaptations, is it your view that the capability uh, improvements that it undoubtedly brings are sufficient to offset the tremendous loss in mass that we're going to suffer as an inevitable result of, of, um, sorry, um, of adopting an incredibly expensive aircraft at a time of um, 
vastly uh, shrinking budgets. We were already going to have a fast jet force of 107 typhoons, so presumably that's going to go substantially lower. Is the capability that much better that it you know, balances that out? And the other um, brief question was, um, do you think that the uh, rather limited internal weapons carriage is a problem for first day operations because, um, particularly in the air-to-air -air mode, the performance of BVR missiles in actual combat, even against non-ECM equipped, non-aware, non-maneuvering targets, is about 10%, so historically speaking anyway. So before we get Meteor integrated and we're still relying on AMRAM, um, is there not a slight issue with uh, running out of ammunition, particularly with no gun? I can't speak for your figures. I don't have that analysis. But um, the is the aircraft worth the money? You have to look at what the requirement is. And the UKMOD has decided that the requirements it needs to be able to fill, fulfill to meet any potential future conflict can only be um, achieved by this aircraft. So the UK has decided it needs fifth gen in the mix. Me personally, um, I wouldn't want to go out to 2050 without a fifth gen platform. You are then denying yourself um, an increasing amount of the world to be able to operate in. And we just don't know where's next. So is it worth the money? The people who've done the analysis, not me, have decided that it is. So I have to, um, to place a lot of credence in their analysis. And the second part of the question was weapons. Um, the UK believes that this is the right aircraft for the job. It is probably as far as I can go there. Um, and in that analysis, it has taken F-35 as a whole in terms of its, you know, its capabilities in the round. So uh, that's all I can really say on that one. Jim, I think you're very brave, as soon as I get the mic last and you banter me. So, um, and I've got all those stories of you in London. Um, <coughs> that was a long time ago. <laughs> um, it's extremely rare to um, get involvement nowadays with such a shrinking aviation industry in such um, an incredible test program. And, and great also that it's a US program and we've got um, UK military test pilots involved. So um, a, a great opportunity um, and a fantastic lecture. Great to hear all the details, and particularly the, the tales of you on the WASP. So thank you very, very much. Thank you.